How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. And good morning. Welcome to more of Healthy Matters here on A3OWCCO. Dr. David Hilden is your host, as uh, the guy said. Good morning to you, Doctor. Good morning, Danny. Nice morning. Oh, it's just beautiful. Just a few wispy clouds outside, but I hear it's going to rain, so there you go. That uh, is the word. Uh, some showers today and uh, tonight and tomorrow as well. But uh, but in the meantime, I mentioned this earlier this morning. The topic you will be discussing today is a big topic, and I know we're going to be probably inundated with phone calls and text messages. I believe we are. Today is uh, we're going to talk about diabetes for the hour. Um, we haven't we've done a few shows. I've had Dr. Fish on and Dr. Sequist on in past years about diabetes, but it's been a little while, so it's time to talk about it again. And so that's, that'll be our topic today. If you have calls or questions, text messages, anything like that, the text line's already got some questions. So we're going to get to those soon, but I'm going to introduce my guest. I'm really excited about this. Dr. Laura LaFave is in the studio with me. Uh, uh, Dr. LaFave is an endocrinologist, and I'll let her explain what one of those is, um, because I doubt there's too many like five-year-olds who grew up and said, I want to grow up to be an endocrinologist because no one knows what it is when you're five. But it's it's a hormone doctor. That's the punchline. Um, and we're going to talk about diabetes with her. She is an endocrinologist here at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis. Her practice is at our clinic and specialty center. Um, she has been, I've known Laura for pretty near two decades, maybe not quite that long, but we did our training together um, at Hennepin. So Laura, thanks for coming. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to have you here. Um, Dr. LaFave's worked out at uh, the, the Park Nicollet system for a few years, and now she's back with us at Hennepin. She came back to what I call the mothership. I tend to call, you know, those of us who trained at Hennepin, it's sort of the mothership, and then you go off into the real world, and then you come back to the mothership. Anyways, uh, Laura practices here in downtown Minneapolis. And, and before we get into diabetes, Laura, tell us or tell our listeners, if you would, please, what, what does an endocrinologist do? So an endocrinologist is a physician that sees patients for hormone-related problems. And I sort of mentioned before that when you think of hormones, I think people automatically kind of jump to thinking about female, women, reproduction, and that's not really what we do at all. So we really uh, deal with problems that people have related to hormones, including insulin, thyroid, adrenal glands, pituitary glands, and in some ways, gonads, testicles, and ovaries. But by and large, the, the vast majority of what we see people for is, is diabetes. That would be your, your top diagnosis in your practice? Probably about 60% of the uh, care that we give in clinic is for diabetes. So those were a, a diverse set of organs. I mean, some of those things you just named, your thyroids and your neck and your, your insulin comes from your pancreas. So there's hormone-producing glands, I guess is what you'd say, all over the body. Correct. And really the definition of a hormone is that it is produced in one part of your body and then it goes out and does its job in other parts of your body. So hormones are 
coursing through our blood at all times and they're doing all sorts of different jobs. So let's talk about the big one that you mentioned. It is the um, over half, almost two-thirds of your practice, diabetes. So that's what we're going to focus on today a little bit. But if you could help us out by how big of a problem is diabetes? We all hear it's on the rise. It's on the rise. Is that true? It's true. Yep. It is a huge problem. So in 2015, about nine and a half percent of Americans had diabetes. And um, that is about, that is actually about 30 million people. And of those people, about two-thirds of those are diagnosed with diabetes and the other third actually don't know that they have diabetes. It's not necessarily something that you would feel symptomatic with. So um, it, it's often picked up just on screening blood tests. Um, sometimes when it's more advanced, people will have come in with symptoms and that's how it will get diagnosed. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people walking around with diabetes who have no idea that they have it. We've, we, um, I remember the terms from the past. Now, we, call, we talk about type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. We, a lot of people who are listening probably remember the terms juvenile diabetes and adult onset diabetes. Could you sort all that out for us? What's the difference between all that? Sure. So type 1 diabetes is what we used to call juvenile diabetes or di- diabetes of the young. Uh, type 1 diabetes is really a problem where the body stops making or stops producing any insulin at all. So that is an autoimmune problem, which means that it's the immune system attacking one's own body or pancreas. And in this case, it causes the pancreas to stop making insulin at all. This typically happens in childhood, although we also see it in young adults and we can see it in in older adults as well. So um, type 1 diabetes is... uh, represents a much smaller percent of people with diabetes. So about 4.5% of people with diabetes have type 1 diabetes. So it's a very small percentage. It's a small percentage. Okay, so that leaves 95% have type 2. Right. So type 2 diabetes is, you know, by and large what we're talking about when we talk about diabetes. Um, That is a problem. That is not a problem with uh, destruction of the pancreas like type 1 is. It's more of a problem of the body stopping uh, recognizing the hormone insulin. So what happens is that your body will become resistant to that hormone. And in doing so, it the insulin cannot get into the cells and allow sugar to be metabolized. And so blood sugars rise. And with that, a lot of different consequences happen to different organs in your body. We're going to talk about a lot of those. What are some of the consequences of that? So we've talked a little bit about insulin and in a nutshell, um, you know, we, and I don't expect you to give a lecture like the, those laborious things we heard in medical school, but what, how, do, how does insulin work? Yeah. So, so insulin is the hormone that's it's produced in what's called your beta cells of your pancreas. And it, what it does is it, it travels around in your bloodstream and it goes to all the cells in your body. So your brain, your heart, your kidneys, your liver, your blood vessels. And what it does is, I think you can think of it as as a uh, kind of a a messenger. So it it knocks on the door of the cells and it says, "Open up, let this sugar in to then give fuel to the cells." So our little cells are just chock full of different machinery that's basically making everything work. And insulin is kind of the the messenger that allows this the glucose or, or sugar to get into your cells to make all that work. I like that one. I have, I have struggled over the last 10 or 20 years to explain what insulin does or how it works. And I go, well, you need it. 
I, that's what I tell people. You, you just kind of need it because you, you know <laughs> you need it, but you need the right amount. You need the right amount. I so, love the knocking on the door thing mm-hmm. because you know your cells need fuel, and and the insulin is sort of the messenger. I really like that. Okay, so you need insulin. It's required for life. We've established that. What's wrong in diabetes? What if you don't have enough for your cells aren't are resistant to it, you said? Right. So uh, without insulin, what happens is that that sugar has nowhere to go. And so it, it accumulates in your bloodstream. And then it travels around and doesn't do anything effective or efficient for your body, but rather it just starts to damage things. And the, the it, it you can kind of think of it as it damages the most vulnerable parts of your body. So it damages lots of tiny little blood vessels. So when people have diabetes that is uncontrolled, they will have uh, damage to the tiny little blood vessels in their eyes, and that can cause what's called retinopathy and blindness. It can cause tiny da- damage to the tiny blood vessels in the kidneys, which can cause end-stage renal disease or people needing to go on dialysis or have transplants. And it also causes damage to the nerves. So the all the the nerves, especially in the the uh, the nerves that are farthest away from your brain. So like your feet, people's feet, and their hands, as well as a whole host of other sort of um, neuropathies that can occur. But the the big blood vessels that it can damage are in the heart and the brain. So the the big what we call macrovascular or big blood vessel complications of diabetes. Um, include heart attacks, heart disease, and strokes. So is that why diabetes is bad for you? I mean, uh, I mean, when it gets right, right down to it, it's all these long-term things that can happen. Correct. When do they happen? It depends. Um, if you have, if a person has control, good control of their diabetes, they might never develop any of these complications. But if they don't have perfect control, they would tend to start developing complications within five to ten years of diagnosis. So that's not that long out. It's uh, not particularly when you think that many people don't know that they have diabetes. Yeah, so, so there's a delay in diagnosis sometimes. Correct. So you said that um, – uh, we've got a couple more minutes, right, Denny? Yeah. So you say there's um, – a lot of people don't know. How does one find out? Well, you you have to get your blood sugar tested. Does that so. mean you have to go to the doctor? Yeah. Correct. Well, I don't do that. There's, a, there's a, <laughs> there, there are lots of uh, – there are there's several different ways to diagnose diabetes, so um, but they all rely on blood testing. So um, uh, there there are criteria for the diagnosis of diabetes. So if you go in to see your doctor, probably the best thing to do is to go in fasting. If you are concerned about whether you could have diabetes or you have a risk factor, which I think we'll talk about too, then going in fasting for at least eight or ten hours is a great idea because then your doctor can do tests that will be accurate. Um, and you can have your blood sugar tested as well as a test called a hemoglobin A1C. And that is a way to look at how high your blood sugar has been over the previous three months. So it's kind of a look back, a retrospective um, look back and see how high has your blood sugar been. That was our first text message of the morning was about A1C. So before you get mm-hmm. off that topic, what's normal and can it change over time is what the texter is saying. For sure. Yep. So a normal blood sugar, just straight fasting blood sugar would be under 100. So um, if you uh, come in fasting and your blood sugar is 90, you probably don't have diabetes. Um, if it's 100 to 126, that is in the category, that puts you in the category of pre-diabetes. And if it's a 126 or above, that means you have diabetes. 
Now, you have to have two tests to make the diagnosis. So if you come in and you have one random blood sugar of 125, that doesn't necessarily mean you have prediabetes. You need to have it repeated. Um, or alternately, you can have a hemoglobin A1C done. And that number is a percentage. So that's giving you uh, an idea of what percent of your red blood cells have been exposed to high levels of sugar. And our red blood cells live for about 90 days. So that's why it's a look at a three-month average blood sugar. So a normal hemoglobin A1C would be under 5.7%, but not it wouldn't be normal to be 2% because you can't be get some. that low. You have to have some, right? But uh, And then between 5.7 and 6.5 would be prediabetes, and over 6.5 or above would diagnose you with diabetes. It, we used to do a lot of um, oral glucose tolerance tests where you'd come in and drink Boy, the sugar. Boy, it's been a long time since I've done that. Yeah, we don't do pregnant that a lot. People. Pregnant, don't, yes. Don't we do it the in pregnant exception people? is pregnant women. Yes, we'd still screen with uh, glucose loading in pregnant women. So the, so the two big ways are to get a, a fasting blood sugar on two occasions or a hemoglobin A1C. And you, do you need to be fasting for the hemoglobin A1C? You do not, which is also what makes it very convenient if you're not fasting at the doctor. Tell you what, let's take a break and invite our listeners to join in on the conversation, 651-989-9226, or send a text if you like, 81807, 81807. In the Twin Cities, a few, a few clouds, lots of sunshine downtown, our CCO temp 69. Good morning. Welcome to Healthy Matters. We're talking, among other things, about diabetes today, and we uh, certainly welcome your phone calls and text messages for the doctors, 651 651- 989-9226, or text number is 81807. Dr. Hilden? Thank you, Denny. Before we get back into diabetes, I want to t- uh, remind people of our upcoming events. First of all, if if you were there at the live studio audience for our show two weeks ago for our Decade with Dave, thank you for coming. It was great to meet everybody. Uh, Dr. Lefebvre was there, um, my guest in studio today. But at that was the kickoff for our community health series, which we have labeled Here for Health. Um, that uh, takeoff on Hennepin's uh, tagline, our healthcare system's um, tagline is we're here for life. And so this is the Here for Health Community Education Series. There are three sessions. The first one is in July 12th, just a few weeks from now. It's a Thursday um, late afternoon and early evening. There will be two topics. Um, I am doing one of them. I'm doing a, 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 re, a reboot of a talk I've been giving for many, many years called How to Live to be 100 or Die Trying. It's going to be just a fun, lighthearted look at how to stay healthy. I will be doing that one. So if you didn't um, get to come out to the live show, I'd love to meet you at that. My colleague, Dr. Jake Matlock, is a gastroenterologist with a dry and warped sense of humor. Uh, he, he is going to be there to talk to you about the ins and outs of colon, uh, colonoscopies. No, I didn't make up that name. But Jake and I will be there together um, uh, to talk about those two topics. It'll be a fun um, session. It'll be free. The parking's free. Yeah, the parking's right underground. Um, it's at our clinic and specialty center right on the uh, main floor in the community room um, in downtown Minneapolis. Thursday, July 12th. To register for that or for the August or September sessions, you can read all about them at hennepinhealthcare.org slash here for health. That's here, numeral four, health, here for health. 
and um, sign up. It is free, um, but we do want to know how many people are coming. There are a few seats available yet for the July 12th session, um, although uh, we've got a pretty good group already, so um, we hope you will sign up for that. Okay, Dr. Laura Lafave, endocrinologist at Hennepin Healthcare. We've talked a little bit about the basics of what diabetes is, why it matters. Can we talk a little bit about who gets it? So what are what are the risk factors for getting diabetes and how might a person um, try to reduce uh, his or her risk for getting diabetes? So there are a lot of risk factors for diabetes, some of which we can do things about and some of which we can't. So number one is uh, age. So over the age of 45 just puts you at higher, much higher risk. The tender age of 45? Tender age. I know. Oh, it's like geez. you get your reading glasses and oh, you are gosh. at risk for diabetes. And in fact – in the over 65-year-old age group, um, uh, 25% of people have type 2 diabetes. So that's, you know, there's really a jump, a big leap as we age. Um, the other big risk factor is being overweight or obese. So that means having a body mass index over 25. Um, and that... Um, that's a know, lot of people. That's a cruelly low number. It's That's correct. And, and it's actually... Um, Adjusted a little bit for different ethnic groups, so um, you you might have um, you know for example if you're a, a person of South Asian descent, then having a BMI over 23 puts you at risk. So there are um, uh, so that is a big you're right that's a people big group of say that, Indian origin or from right. India yeah, even from if China. it's even smaller or from China mm-hmm. yeah wow okay um, being uh, having a family history, which again you can't really well you can't really do anything about your family history, but uh, family history puts you at high risk. For women, having had a history of gestational diabetes, which is diabetes in pregnancy, puts you at very high risk. And in fact, when women have gestational diabetes, uh, ten years down, that is something that usually resolves after pregnancy, but ten years post pregnancy, they have about a fifty percent chance of having type two diabetes. So if you think about, you know, a 25-year-old woman having gestational diabetes, that means by age 35, she's got a half half. That's a huge chance. increase. It's a huge risk. increase, yeah. Um, also being from a higher-risk uh, ethnic group. So this is really a big, a big area that we see a huge health care disparity. Um, s- only, well, 7.5% of white people have type 2 diabetes, but 15% of Native American people have mm, type 2 diabetes. Twice as high. Twice as high. And then um, kind of in the middle of that, um, Asian Americans are at 8%, Latinos are at 12%, and African Americans are at 12.7%. So being in a, a higher risk ethnic or racial group puts you at considerably higher risk. Do we know why that would be? Um, I don't think we know exactly why that is. I think there's a lot of – there are a lot of um, – there, there certainly is probably some genetic component to that. But I think there's also a huge uh, social component to it, and I think um, a lot of uh, a lot of the literature is looking at wh- what sort of experiences and stress people experience in their life that causes them to develop insulin resistance and diabetes. So you know, it's there's there are certainly many factors in people's lives in terms of their access to. Um, to um, food, to um, safe safe neighborhoods where they can exercise, to um, mm-hmm. uh, access to medical care that is affecting all of this for sure. But I think there's elements that we don't even know or so, understand. So there's some genetics. There's some um, uh, there's there's some of the other risk factors you mentioned. Let's talk a little bit about weight. Does it 
So you said being overweight. Um, so mm-hmm. can one simply by losing 10 pounds, does that mean I won't get diabetes or can I reduce my chances? Sure. So that is a, a an area that we know a lot about. So in there have been really good studies looking at lifestyle intervention for the prevention of diabetes. So remember we said that a third of all Americans have this pre-diabetes situation. Pre-diabetes is exactly what it sounds like. It's before you get diabetes. So the best way, one of the best ways to prevent progressing from pre-diabetes to diabetes is to lose 5 to 7% of body weight. So when people ask, is this going to make a difference if I lose this weight, it absolutely will make a difference. Absolutely. I want to talk a, a little bit more about that if we could maybe after the break. Denny, do we have time um, to take a phone call? I'll uh, tell you what, the Betty in St. Louis Park, why don't you give us your question, Betty? We we have to take a break, and then we'll answer it on the way back. Uh, Betty, what is your question? Real fast. My question is, I'm diabetic, about seven years, well under control. Uh, I'm 89 years old, and on May, uh, on June 7th, the hospital diagnosed that I have a cyst on my pancreas. And also, I've heard and learned more about my diabetes this morning that I have all the years I've had a thank you. But that's, I have a cyst on my pancreas. What will they do about it and how serious is it and, and the prognosis? Betty, thank you so much for your call. Um, I'm going to ask, um, you to, should we hold off? Sure. If you, we're going to take our news break at, here at the top of the hour, Betty, and we were going to get to your question first thing um, at, at the when other side of back. the break. So, so thank I'm, you for your question. Hang on, Betty. And uh, we have uh, text messages uh, to, uh, to answer to as well. 651-989-9226. Uh, text number is 81807. We have another half hour of the show to go. So don't go away. Healthy Matters will continue in just a few minutes right after the news break. In the Twin Cities now, uh, Windsor Easter about four miles an hour. Humidity, 84%. We expect some shower activity later on this afternoon and tonight and possibly tomorrow. Right now, our current CCO temperature reading, 69. Welcome to Healthy Matters, presented by Hennepin Healthcare, a network of neighborhood clinics, specialty centers, hospital, and Minnesota's Level 1 Adult and Pediatric Trauma Center. Please remember we can only give general medical advice during the program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your personal physician if you have health concerns. Now, here's Denny Law with your host, Dr. David Hilden, internal medicine physician with Hennepin Healthcare, with more Healthy Matters. And good morning. Welcome to this portion of Healthy Matters on this uh, Sunday morning. Uh, Dr. Hilden, for those folks that may have joined us a little late, and I know we're going to get uh, Betty back on uh, on the phone. Uh, who did you bring with you today? I have Dr. Laura Lefebvre in studio with me. Um, those of you who were listening two weeks ago, maybe remember that we briefly introduced Laura um, to our live stu- our live audience at the Decade with Dave show. That was two weeks ago. By the way, thank you if you went. If you have a picture of you with your coffee mug, uh, we have coffee mugs that we had of, 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 uh, that everybody got who was at the show. Take a picture of it and send it to me. Email it to healthymatters at hcmed.org. Or you can always Twitter it. No, wait, that's not the verb. You can always tweet it to me on my Twitter account, which is dr. David Hilden. Or just email your picture with you and your coffee mug to healthymatters at hcmed.org. While you're online, 
check out the blog site. I haven't put up a post for a little while. My last post is still about mental health, but it was one of the, the things that I was most passionate about. Um, that's at hen, um, myhealthymatters.org. And while you're there, subscribe by email. I'm going to put up some cool pictures of um, MRIs, including an MRI of my own head. I've, I got those back. Um, and I, I'm going to put up my, my MRI pictures. You can see that there might actually be a brain in there somewhere. And I'm going to talk about how an MRI works. So I'm going to do that in the next day or two. That's at myhealthymatters.org. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for the Here for Health series. Uh, the next one is July 12th, which is me. I'll be there again uh, down at the Clinic and Specialty Center talking about how to live to be 100 or die trying. And uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Jake Matlock, is going to talk about the ins and outs of colonoscopies. Maybe he'll let you put your hands on the, the colonoscope and so you can see what the, what the whole thing looks like. And if, if we're real nice, maybe he'll even give a little tour of the GI lab so you can see where it all happens. Um, sign up. It is free, but you can sign up at hennepinhealthcare.org slash here for health. Okay, back to diabetes with, with my friend and colleague, Dr. Laura Lefebvre. She's an endocrinologist at Hennepin Healthcare. She practices in our downtown Minneapolis location with a great group of endocrinologists. Um, it's one of the strongest divisions. Um, they're a great teaching faculty, and they're great in clinical cares. So um, Dr. Lefebvre is talking to us about diabetes. And just before the break, we were talking to Betty, and I think Betty's still on the phone. Now, Betty had a question, and uh, maybe you could summarize it for us, Laura, and, and help her out. Thanks. Hi, Betty. Uh, Betty called. She is 89 years old. She's had type 2 diabetes for seven years, and she mentioned that she had been in the hospital in early June and was diagnosed with a cyst on her pancreas and was concerned about what that means. Is that right, Betty? Yes, that's right. I, my diabetes has always been under control. It was just checked again for uh, Medicare on May 18th. But I also have the eye things, too, with it. But I'm concerned about the cyst on the pancreas. Betty, congratulations on being 89 and having well-controlled diabetes. That's fantastic. You're doing beautifully. Um, a cyst on your pancreas is usually not concerning. These are typically benign. They're not usually going to probably do anything about that. Um, it, it Because it's your pancreas, you might also wonder, does this have something to do with my diabetes? Is this causing my diabetes? And the, probably not. Um, it's, it's probably a separate thing. Um, but unless it's causing any problems with, you know, abdominal pain or where it's really, really big, they're probably not going to do anything specific about it. Oh, bless you, doctor. I, I, no one ever sent me to an endocrinologist, and I think that you may want to stress that uh, people should see an endocrinologist because, as I said, I've learned more from listening to you this morning than the seven or eight years that I've been diabetic. Thank you, Betty. That's a very nice comment. And uh, the good news is, too, is that if you are, you know, uh, because diabetes is so prevalent, uh, primary care doctors like internists and family practice doctors are very, very, very well equipped to help people with diabetes. One of the things that we learn, that I learn a lot when patients come in to see me and they say, well, this was great because this whole folk, this whole visit was focused on my diabetes. And I say, well, that's how, that's because that's what we do here. When you see your primary doctor, a lot of times you might have, you know, five or eight or ten things that you want to kind of cover in that visit. So my suggestion to people when they're working with their primary doctors on their diabetes is to just schedule an appointment that is just for your diabetes. So going in to have your usual time allotted 
just for diabetes is a great idea to kind of move things along with how you're um, working with your primary doctor on your diabetes for sure. Thank you, Betty, for hanging on. 651-989-9226. A text, and we'll get back to those two in a moment. Uh, 81807. Tom, though, <clears throat> excuse me, has been waiting in Morna to uh, ask a question. Thank you, Tom. What is your question? Well, it, uh, I was hopeful when you mentioned type 1 diabetes to start out with, and then the uh, next sentence was a downplay of it. And I've had a lot of trouble finding information on it, and the doctors, I've had several doctors, and they don't really know much about it or don't tell me much, and I was lucky enough after about nine educators to find one with type 1, and she told me more in 15 minutes than I've learned in 57 years, you know, so I I don't know. Well, Tom, thank you for your call. Let's say a little bit more about type 1 diabetes. Yeah, Tom, and thanks so much for for your comment. I I don't... Definitely was not meaning to downplay type 1 diabetes. I think when I was talking about the percentage of people who have type 1 diabetes, as you know, it is a much smaller percent, but certainly is a huge, huge disease. And we that's actually in endocrinology, the majority of patients that we treat in clinic have type 1 diabetes. So just kind of to combine your and Betty's question, most patients who have type 2 diabetes really are taken care of by their primary doctors. And a, and a lot of the patients that we visit with have type 1 diabetes like you, Tom. So 57 years, amazing. Congratulations. You are doing great. And I'm just impressed that you would take the time to call in. Um, I think, you know, just for for uh, some of the things that we, we know about type 1 diabetes is that um, be, because patients are, are usually typically diagnosed when they are so young, they obviously have a much longer time period to in their lives where they have to keep their their blood sugars controlled in order to prevent all of these complications. Fortunately, I think the tools and things we have today are just far and away so much better than the things we had 20 or 30 years ago even. Um, So uh, some of the bigger kind of advances in type 1 diabetes are are using um, different ways to deliver insulin and um, as we talked about in the beginning, people with type 1 diabetes, their bodies just stop making insulin altogether. So from day one of diagnosis, they have to take insulin injections. And they may have to take five or six insulin injections every day and test their blood sugar same amount of time, five or six times every day, which, as you can imagine, and you know, Tom, is just a huge, a huge real burden. Um, so... Some of the tools that we have now in terms of how we can deliver insulin through insulin pumps and how we can monitor, patients can monitor their blood sugar by wearing glucose sensors have really brought management of type 1 diabetes kind of into the 21st century and um, hopefully has made living with type 1 diabetes a little bit easier. It's never going to be an easy disease. I, I admire everybody who has type 1 diabetes. It's really something that... Um, that is uh, affects every single part of of your life and and of lives of the people around you and um, yet you know people who persevere and and manage it and go to work and take care of their kids and do all this stuff they're really I think heroes. So, so type one diabetes, you simply must get insulin. Is that correct? Correct. correct. 
Okay, so um, and and you just can't go without it. You need to inject it somehow. Here's a text on that vein because you talked about some newer things, and this is something I'm not familiar with, but I'm going to guess you might be. <laughs> uh, this texter says, I have type 1 diabetes for 25 years. I'm on the new 670G pump. It's amazing. I've been pumping for 12 years. This is close to an artificial pancreas. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, very exciting uh, times for um, for people with type 1 diabetes. So the, this is the newest. Um, there's this has been in the press a little bit as um, kind of portrayed as an artificial pancreas. It's not really an artificial pancreas, but it's getting close. So the idea with this pump. So this is an insulin pump that works with a glucose sensor. So this is where a patient will wear a pump, which is a little device that will deliver insulin continuously to their body. They also will wear a glucose sensor which is a little device that is measuring their blood sugar level every minute. And this new pump has the ability to then adjust the amount of insulin that is going into the body based on the blood sugar. So when you have a working pancreas, that's what your pancreas is doing. So if I'm you know, going about my day and exercising and working and eating, my pancreas is constantly kind of adjusting to that by raising, lowering, stabilizing insulin levels to keep my blood sugar, you know, basically between 70 and 120. So when a person has type 1 diabetes, they are reliant on the insulin coming from the outside. So this new pump is really, I I wouldn't say it's a miracle, but I would say that it definitely has really helped people stabilize their blood sugar and especially not to get low blood sugars, which is a big problem for people with type 1 diabetes. All right, we have more show to come. Stay with us. 651-989-9226. Text is 81807. In the Twin Cities, it's currently 72 degrees. We'll be right back. And welcome back to this portion of Healthy Matters. We're talking about diabetes today. And, uh, doctors, we have uh, Don and St. Paul on the line before we run out of time. Go ahead, Don. What is your question? Hello. Yeah. Uh, my question is about medication. Uh, I am a diabetic, too. I take glipicide, 10 milligrams, and metformin. My deal is about taking that glipicide. See, I look at my bottle and it tells to take it before a meal. I always find I'll take it 30 minutes before a meal to kick, you know, kind of get to get the medication going there. Because I found out when I took it 10 minutes before the meal or during the meal, and my numbers, they go, they're still up. But when I take it like 30 minutes before the meal, I notice my numbers are dramatically gone down. So I just, you know, this, when you're taking your medication, I know that metformin really don't matter. You can take it during it, after, you know, I know. So, it, so basically my mind has glipicide. Now, is this right that you should actually take about 30 minutes before a meal? Don, that's absolutely correct. And I really feel like you should be giving some um, instruction in the clinics about uh, medication administration. It is so important to take your medication correctly, and it's absolutely true that Glipizide and medicines in that class should be taken 15 to 30 minutes before you eat. So you are taking it exactly right, and you've seen the difference. If you take it too close to the meal or during or after, you're not going to get the same effect on your body. That is right that metformin is not nearly as sensitive, so you can take that pretty much you know, any time, but it's best tolerated if you take it with food because otherwise it can cause some uh, some stomach side effects. 
Thank you for your question, Don. Laura, I'm going to go to the text line. There's going to be more than we get to, so we're going to do a little lightning round from the text line. There are two of them about diet, and I had wanted to get into diet a little bit, but let's use these text lines um, uh, to talk about diet a bit. The first one says, uh, to, to Denny and the doctors, why is there so much sugar put into almost everything a person eats or drinks? And the second one says, I'm 65. I have a strong family history of diabetes, but I eat nutritiously and exercise. My weight is within normal limits. How likely am I to get type 2 diabetes? So diet and diabetes, please. Yeah, so that's a very important topic because I think this is part of what is driving uh, so much diabetes in our in our country and the world is is our diet. Um why, of course, first question, why is so much sugar put into food that we eat? I think because it tastes good. And I think that that is how food is um, sold because I think that uh, when there's sugar in it, we like the way it tastes and then we buy it. Um, that being said, you know, there's no bad there's no bad food. So sugar in and of itself is not – Can we quote you on that? Well, I mean <laughs> – Dave was talking about donuts last time we were in the in the live show. So, um, sugar is complicated because it's not just sugar. It's not table sugar as you as you imagine it, like the sugar that goes in cookies or cakes or pies, um, or the sugar that goes in candies. Sugars include starches. So, starches are breads, rice, pastas, tortillas, um, all of potatoes. All of those things contain starch, which is ultimately turned into sugar in your body. So, when you are thinking about how much sugar you're eating, you need to think about both the, you know, the, the sweet and the savory sugars. And most of us aren't in. thinking about that pasta and the baked potato. That's correct. Um, so, um, you know, as far as thinking about the sources of foods that are good to get sugar, because sugar, remember, it really is our fuel. Remember, we talked about how sugar fuels our cells, but the best way to get sugar in your body is by eating complex carbohydrates. So foods that are hard for harder for your body to kind of break down and that includes things like whole grain whole grain com- carbohydrates, whole grain breads, whole wheat pastas, brown rice, whole wheat tortillas, things like this are sweet potatoes rather than regular potatoes. All of these things are going to be easier for your body to get the fuel from it and not put the stress on your body and cause it to have to produce so much insulin. Um so sugar is in everything. Um the, the best thing I can say about that is that if you prepare your own food most of the time, you will mostly be able to control what is going into it. That's a good tip. That's good. Here's one more food question. Does ice cream cause diabetes? <laughs> so, <laughs> ice cream is not the sole responsible culprit for causing diabetes. Um, Denny I would, and I are looking at yeah, you. Yeah, Denny like, looks oh, very anxious. Yeah, over there. I know. this so, question. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, uh, ice cream has obviously sugar in it. There are low sugar forms of ice cream available, um, is that, um, you know, you try to eat healthfully and well, just like the 65 year old who's got the strong family history and is observing a healthful diet and exercising. That sounds to me like the exact right approach. And you, that sounds like a person who's probably not at super high risk despite family history. Um, I think trying to be doing what you know is right. 80 to 85% of the time is probably going to keep you healthy. Of course, we're going to have ice cream. It's summer. It's short. Have some ice cream. Have some, you know, fresh Minnesota strawberries on your ice cream. But it's not something we should be eating every day. Hallelujah. I think that's that's a good answer. You know, there's lots more text questions. Thank you, everybody. As always, we can't get to them all. We're going to talk about osteoporosis and thyroid disease at a future show. There were lots of questions about those as well. And I'm sorry we're not going to get to all of those. I do want to remind you, go to to hennepinhealthcare.org slash here for health and sign up for the healthcare series.
And <clears throat> excuse me, next week, what is it? The show? We're going to do an open lines next week. And um, But if you need to get in touch with a doctor, if you want to see Dr. Lefebvre, if you need an endocrinologist, if you need a primary care doctor, check us out at hennepinhealthcare.org or you can call us, 612-873-6963. Thank you, Dr. Lefebvre. Good to see you again. Thanks, Denny. Dr. Hilda, we'll see you next week here on A3OWCCO. It's currently 72 degrees. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.